want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we uh, we talk to folks and you know sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we'd give those away. He had the the joke book and the and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, that's uh, not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show, and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and... Um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New just part of the New Testament little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And, uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice insane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible and I've always said you know that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize I don't respect that at all if you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever and you think that uh, well it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward and atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. But this guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize 
and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like to show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave you that book. That's all I wanted to say. Now, I bet that when you came to church this morning, you weren't expecting to hear a pep talk on evangelism from an atheist. That's what we just basically received there. That man's name is Penn Jillette. Uh, he is famous because he is a part of a, a comedy and illusionary type of act, like magic magician type of stuff. Uh, he's part of that called Penn and Teller. And he's basically telling us, you know what, if we really believe that there is a heaven and a hell, if there is a God to whom we should respond, we should tell other people about it. Because it's that important. He says he doesn't respect people who believe something that they say is that important, but then they just keep it to themselves. When we look at the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has accomplished for us through his life, death, and resurrection, we think, you know what, that is the ultimate good news that has ever come to this earth. Because through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, we can have the privilege of reconciliation with God and of true and eternal life. What a privilege that is. And Pendulette, this atheist who doesn't really believe this stuff, he's still saying, you know what? If you believe this stuff is true, if you want to live a life of integrity, if you really care about other people, you will get out there and tell them about this truth that you believe. You know what? Jesus, coming from a very different perspective, I mean, he's obviously not an atheist, but Jesus is basically telling us the same thing. Because Jesus says, Go. Make disciples, make disciples of all nations. Jesus says, just as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And so we're called to be his representatives, be his ambassadors to this world. The question for us, though, is what does that look like on a practical basis? How do we represent him to the world around us in our daily lives, whether it's in our workplace, in our school, in our neighborhoods, family, friends? What does that look like on a practical basis? Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3. We're in a series right now that is called Engage. And this series is all about equipping us to engage our ever-changing culture with the never-changing gospel. And today, over the next few weeks, we're shifting gears a little bit in the series to look more practically at what does it look like? What are the practical how-tos if we want to engage people around us with the good news of Jesus Christ. And today we're looking at a passage out of 1 Peter 3. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive into this passage. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us the privilege and the calling of representing you to this world. We recognize that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that there is no true life apart from you. And Lord, I pray that you will break through the indifference that we might have, that you will break through the fears that we might have, and that you will work in our lives to give us a conviction and a passion for other people and for you. And that we will grow in our faithfulness of representing you to the world around us in fruitful ways. 
please teach us, Lord, today through, through Scripture, through your Holy Spirit. May we have ears to hear and a heart that's ready to receive and a will that's ready to apply what you have to say to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Peter writes, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now this is a, a really rich passage. The main thing I want to pull out for us today is the fact that we are called to represent Christ with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect should characterize how we interact with people around us in all matters, but particularly when we're seeking to represent Christ. And I want to set the context of what's going on in this passage. Uh, first of all, Peter, throughout the book of 1 Peter, is telling us, you know what, Christ followers will receive mockery and persecution. It's just a matter of, of who we are as Christians in this world. In 1 Peter chapter 2, for instance, Peter is talking about how we are like foreigners and exiles in this world. That, that this world is not our home. That we really, as we live out our Christian faith in this world, we will at times feel like outsiders. And in fact, we will sometimes be treated as outsiders precisely because of the fact that we follow a set of values and practices that come from God, not from this world. Yet at the same time, some people, uh, some Christians, express shock or surprise when they are persecuted, when people do mock them for their faith. But really, we shouldn't be at all surprised when this happens. Just listen to Jesus' words out of John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. Jesus says, If the world hates you, talking about his disciples, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So here you have Jesus as well saying, if you are following him, you are not of this world. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. You're marching to the beat of a different drummer. The drummer is King Jesus. And the world will look at us at times as, outsider, as outsiders. They will at times mock us or persecute us. But you know what? That shouldn't be a surprise, though it might strike fear in us. But Peter says, you know what? Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts... Revere Christ as Lord. So he says, really, there are two basic options here. You can either revere Christ, or you can re revere other people's opinions. Those are really the two bottom line options that we have as we are seeking to engage the world. Is we can either revere Christ or other people's opinions. Peter says, revere Christ. I think of a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, Those who are still afraid of men have no fear of God. And those who have fear of God have ceased to be afraid of men. 
It's really an either-or here. You either give your fear, reverence, respect, your sense of validation, you get that from God or from other people. Those are the two primary places that we can look. Now you may be wondering, who is Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Well, he was a pastor in Germany in the World War II era. He took a, a strong stand against the Nazi regime, didn't back down from that, didn't back down from his faith in Christ. He ended up going to, into a concentration camp for that, ended up being put to death in the concentration camp. But you can see him living out these words that he spoke, that he wasn't afraid of what people could do to him. He had incredible courage in the face of persecution and even death because he wasn't afraid of people. Instead, he revered God. And, and Peter says here, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And when we revere Christ as Lord, it's talking about setting him apart. Literally, it's saying sanctify Christ as Lord. Put him on that pedestal in our hearts so that those other things that clamor for our attention, they really don't hold water in our lives. That our ultimate value, our ultimate sense of worth comes from Jesus. That he is Lord, that, that he, we are submitting to him. And that we are trusting him, knowing that whatever hardships and persecutions we may face, he is still sovereign and he is still trustworthy. And when Jesus is on that throne of our hearts, when we are revering him as Lord, it will change us. It will transform us. We will experience what that famous song sings that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, when we focus on Jesus in this way, when, when he is first and foremost in our lives, when we see him in his beauty and his glory and in the fullness of his grace, he will captivate us. He will give us a sense of joy and a sense of peace. He will give us a sense of purpose and a sense of hope and a sense of life that this world cannot offer. There will be a legitimate difference between us and the rest of the world. And Peter says, look, people will recognize the difference. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So Peter here is showing that people will see and ask about the difference in Christians. They will recognize, okay, there's something different about you. What is that difference? And Peter's saying then, tell them about me. Now, this is recognizing the fact that people do recognize the difference in us. Last week I introduced us to this kind of spectrum of how we can engage the world as Christians. This road represents three different lanes, three different avenues by which we can engage culture, depending on the context and the situation. We can engage culture by confronting culture at times when it's in direct opposition to God. Or by conversing with culture, getting a dialogue, redemptive dialogue, back and forth, questions, stuff like that, trying to point them to Christ. Or we can create new culture that honors God and helps point them to Jesus. We'll be talking more about these in the coming weeks. But on each side of these roads, there are ditches that we don't really want to be in. On one side is cocooning, where we isolate ourselves from the culture to such a degree that we aren't really interacting or engaging with culture anymore. And Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he is assuming that we are not isolating ourselves and cocooning from culture, but instead we are engaged, we're rubbing shoulders so that people can see the difference. But there is a difference. On the other side of the road, if we go too far the other direction, the cultural side, 
we can conform to culture where there really is no distinguishable difference between us and culture. We may call ourselves Christians. We may go to church on Sunday mornings. But in reality, as people look at our day-to-day lives, they're like, what difference? We look just like everyone else. So Peter is making it very clear here that we are not to cocoon away from the world. We're still to be in the world, to rub shoulders with, with people of all sorts all the time. But we're also still not to conform to the world because there is to be a legitimate difference. And we have to recognize that some people, when they see that difference, it will rub them the wrong way. They will at times mock us. For instance, back here in, in 1 Peter um, chapter 4, verse 4, it says, The pagans are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. And so, so there will be times where people mock us because we don't fit in with the rest of the world. They might say things like, well, you are so old-fashioned. Just loosen up a little bit, just to live a little bit. Or I remember, you know, back in locker rooms, I imagine it's the same now in high school locker rooms as it um, was back when I was in high school. I mean, things like, what, you aren't man enough to sleep with your girlfriend? And they'd say it in different terms and stuff. But, I mean, there's this pressure. There's this mockery of, what, why aren't you doing this sort of thing? Or people might say, you know what, you Christians, you are so judgmental and arrogant. There will be some people that when they see this difference between Christians and the rest of the world, they will mock us or they will persecute us. But there will be others whose interests are piqued. They want to know, okay, why, why are you so different? Why, in the midst of a very tumultuous time, are you able to remain calm? Or why, why do you talk so much about Jesus? I, you know, I grew up in church. I heard about Jesus, but church didn't really mean anything to me. Why, why do you care so much about this? It's an open door to talk about Jesus. There might be other types of questions like, you know, why are you still driving around that old car? I mean, you make enough money. You have a high enough position in the company. You should be able to afford something much nicer. I mean, the other people at your level are like BMW, Mercedes, Lexus, stuff like that. Why are you still driving around that old Honda? Be like, you know, yeah, I have the money. It's available, but I don't put my sense of worth or validation in the things that I buy. I don't need that because, you know, Jesus gives me something better. It's an open door to point people to Christ. Or, why don't you go out to bars with us? Or, you know, it seems like you really have your life together. I know that things aren't perfect, but, but it seems like things are really going well for you. you. You are able to navigate the challenges of life well. Or, you know, how are you so kind to others, even when they are so mean to you? I mean, we could list hundreds and hundreds of different scenarios in which people might notice a difference in us if we're living out our Christian faith, and they may inquire about it. But the bottom line is that Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. He's talking about be prepared. Think in advance of how might you respond if people ask this question or this question or make this observation. Know why you believe what you believe. Imagine if sometime this week, your workplace, neighborhood, something like that, someone comes up to you, you've known them for quite a while, you've rubbed shoulders with them, they know that you're a Christian. And they say, you know, I don't get this whole God thing. You know, I guess you'd call me an atheist, but I don't really understand how people can believe in God because of this, this, this. Would you know how to respond to them? I mean, it's really an open invitation for you to just have a dialogue with them about why you believe in God, but will you be able to dialogue about it more than just, you know, one or two minutes? 
more than just saying, you know, I grew up in church and I always was taught that there was a God and the Bible says there's a God, so I believe it. I mean, that might be a starting point. But when people are asking these deep questions that, that people ask, they're looking for much more than just, well, I believe it because that's what's been told to me down through the years. So the question is, are we prepared to answer the questions that people ask? Are we prepared to point people to why we believe what we believe? Why we have such hope? Why we have such faith in Christ? Are we prepared? One of the greatest um, or most common classic dreams, bad dreams, is being unprepared. I mean, you think about those dreams, we've probably all had them about getting on the bus and our shoes are still at home or something worse is still at home. Um, you get to school and realize, man, there's, there's this massive test, and I had no idea it was today. I'm not prepared at all. Everyone else is prepared, but somehow I missed the memo. Or how about this one? Um, you get, you're, you're dreaming, of, you're in college. You get to near the end of the college semester and suddenly realize there was this class that you were registered for, but you completely forgot to go to class. I mean, I have this dream still on a recurring basis. And I mean, it freaks you out. You are so happy to wake up and realize that dream is not reality. You know, you have dreams about your job as well. I'm a pastor, so I dream about pastor-type stuff. I have dreams on a periodic basis that Sunday morning comes, and I've completely forgotten to prepare for my sermon. But actually, it's usually more significant than that, because that would be a relatively simple thing to figure out. I mean, not super easy, but I can figure that one out. My issues, which I even had a dream like this last night, is I can't find the sanctuary. And then when I, those times in other dreams where I can find it, I mean, it's a strange looking place. I mean, it's, I can't even put it into words what that place looks like. But it's just strange. Last night my dream was about the AV system isn't working, which may be a real nightmare at times. Um, but, we, you know, we have these nightmares. We want to be prepared. And it's a terrible dream or a terrible reality at times when we are unprepared for something. And Peter is saying, be prepared. Imagine that you are on a football team. And the coach looks over to you and says, okay, you're, go out there. You get out on the field, run this play. And you desperately want to go out there and be able to run the play and make a difference. But you know what? You're over here in street clothes. You can't go out there and run the play. You aren't ready for it. You want to make a difference, but you're unprepared. But Peter, here in this passage, calls us, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have. He's saying, be ready. Be, get out on that field and be ready to go, ready to run the plays. Yet, he does give one quick warning here. He says, but do this with gentleness and respect. He's saying, okay, yes, get out there. Get in the field. Represent me to the world. But the way you represent Team Jesus makes a difference because attitude really matters. He says, but do this with gentleness and respect. So gentleness. When we are gentle in our interactions with other people, we are real, really mirroring the character of Jesus. Back in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So he is, he is gentle. He's humble in heart. I believe that this gentleness, this, this humility is really his default attitude as he's interacting with people around him. 
Now, there certainly are times that, that he takes a harsher tone, a stronger tone, especially with the religious leaders of the day. But I believe that his default attitude as he's interacting with others is one of gentleness and humility. We see this as well back here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. It's talking about when Jesus was being beaten just before he was crucified. It says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We see, no, when he was undergoing such suffering, such persecution, he didn't retaliate. He didn't threaten them. He didn't return insult for insult. Instead, he, he was gentle in how he, he endured that. And we're called to do the same thing even when people are persecuting us. Over in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter writes, Do not repay evil with evil, or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. So Peter's saying we will be blessed when we bless others, even when we are being persecuted or insulted. That we are to be gentle in how we are interacting with those around us. We are also to be respectful, he says, but... Um, but do so with gentleness and respect. Respect is communicated in a wide variety of ways. It can be in our tone of voice. It can be in how do we respond to people's objections or challenges or doubts. Do we take them seriously, which communicates respect? Or we just kind of blow them, out, blow them off and not really pay attention to them? Respect is shown by whether or not we ask questions, whether or not we're legitimately listening to them, whether or not we are treating others the ways we would want to be treated. Now, some people, especially some Christians, might say, well, some of these people, they aren't really worthy of respect. I mean, they are in error. They are sinners who deserve eternal damnation if they don't repent. Some Christians would, would have this attitude towards the people around them. But I would ask, if you treat other people with rudeness, with arrogance, with disrespect, why do you expect them to respect you? And your views about Jesus. Why would they want to follow the Jesus that you say is so great if you're treating them rudely or indifferently? We're called to, to treat others with gentleness and respect because their attitude really does matter. This isn't just coming from Peter. It's all over the New Testament. I think, for instance, of Second Peter, or Second Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Paul writes to young Timothy that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. We see that, that even when people push back on us, our call is not to be quarrelsome, because you aren't going to argue anyone into the kingdom of God. When we get argumentative with people, what ends up happening is walls go up, uh, you, you're kind of firing mortars back at each other, you're arguing, but... But people's hearts get hard in that point. We want to keep that line of communication open. So Paul says, opponents must be gently instructed. You hear that? Gently instructed uh, should be kind to everyone, not resentful. And that as we do so, our prayer is that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Now, one of the primary reasons why we should respect the people around us is that everyone, regardless of their background, regardless of the messiness of their lives, everyone 
is a human being created in the image of God. And that gives people an inherent sense of dignity that we should respect, even if we deeply disagree with them. There should still be a respect for them as people, to hear them out, to, to treat them gently and, and caringly. I think of Jesus. John chapter 4, he's interacting with a Samaritan woman who, who just has a messy background. I mean, odds are good that she was a bit of a social outcast. I mean, she definitely uh, was following some false religion. Um, on top of that, she was a woman, which in that society, women are treated with this inherent sense of disrespect. But you look at how Jesus treated her with, with significant respect, with significant gentleness. He's engaging her in a back-and-forth dialogue. They are conversing. He is engaging with her in a redemptive manner. And because he's built that bridge of respect and trust and gentleness, the gospel is able to flow over that bridge. She ends up coming to faith in Christ. And on top of that, because of that, her influence then, then a significant portion of her town comes to faith in Christ. All because there's been a bridge of trust that has been built through gentleness through respect, through grace, and the gospel flows best over the bridge of those types of relationships. Now again, we have the question of, if we don't respect others, why should we expect them to respect us or to respect the Jesus who we say is so great? One of my other favorite passages on this type of topic is out of Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It says, be wise, as Paul speaking, he says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer everyone. Be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Uh, speak wisely, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So grace, respect, trust, uh, care, gentleness. These are to be characteristics of how we interact with the people around us. I want to give us an actual literal image, uh, a metaphor for understanding how this works in our conversations with people around us. It's an image that comes from a Christian, pastor, or a Christian author named Charles Stromer. Uh, his name is not that important, but I just want to make it clear. I didn't invent this, but I think it's, it's been very helpful to me for many, many years. It's the image of a warship and a submarine. And these are kind of an opposite, uh, opposite teams, opposite categories here. They aren't, they aren't allies. They're more of enemies, sort of. And in this image, this metaphor, the warship represents a Christian. And in this image, the submarine represents a non-Christian. And if you have this warship, this destroyer, coming in to the submarine that's up on the surface of the water, you know sometimes submarines are up on the surface, if this battleship or this destroyer or warship comes in with guns blazing, what's the submarine going to do? It's going to go down. It's going to dive down. It's either going to hide, do evasive maneuvers, or it's going to start firing back. That's what is going to happen. And, and when that happens, in this metaphor, if the Christian, a non-Christian dives below the surface, starts firing back, uh, or just kind of stonewalls you if they close off their heart, close off their ears. They may still physically be present in the conversation, but mentally and emotionally, they have disengaged. They are no longer really processing what is being discussed. And so our goal as Christians in conversations, especially in that, I mean, you look at those three different aspects of, of engaging culture and the conversing aspect of it, the goal is to keep them 
up on the surface so that we can have a redemptive dialogue with them, answering questions, discussing doubts, uh, pointing to why we believe in Jesus. But the goal is to keep them up on the surface. And to do this, we have to be very aware of nonverbal cues. Maybe it's things like body language. I mean, if they seem pretty open, they're leaning forward, but then suddenly um, they just start to kind of close off. They kind of fold their arms and just kind of lean back in their chair and uh, maybe staring off in the distance or something like that. That's a clue that they may be disengaging at this point. Or if you're asking them questions and they just stop really wanting to answer any questions, if, if, if they just get really, really quiet, that's a clue. You know what? They are closing off. And we need to be very conscious of this, really, in all of our relationships. Because this principle doesn't just apply in evangelistic dialogues. It applies in friendships, in parenting, in marriage. I find it applies in counseling situations all the time. Because, you know, in counseling situations, you're oftentimes talking about stuff that is very um, uncomfortable or challenging for people, convicting. And when I'm in those counseling situations and I'm helping someone else work through some issues, I have to be very conscious of where are they mentally and emotionally right now. Because I have seen times where I'm talking with someone and, you know what, they're kind of tracking, but I can see they're getting a little bit more closed off. All of a sudden it's like, boom. We've just lost them. They're still here physically. But mentally, emotionally, they have disengaged. And from that point on, unless I can get them back up to the surface and re-engage... Nothing I say or do is really going to help anything. And so our goal is to keep people up on the surface. And you know what? In evangelistic conversations, when we're talking about Jesus, that may mean that there are times when we need to back off a little bit. When, you know what? Because Christian truth can be uncomfortable for people. And so it's not wrong to make people a little uncomfortable, push people a little bit, but still be recognizing where are they right now. Because my goal in conversations uh, with non-Christians, tell them to take one step closer to Jesus. I mean, ideally, they come all the way to Christ, but for many people, it's just one step at a time. And so in those times, my goal is to leave that conversation with a good taste in their mouth. So that, I mean, where I press them a little bit, where I am able to maybe point out, you know, maybe consider this, or what about this? But where I'm able to leave them with a good taste in their mouth because I've treated them with respect, with gentleness, with care, with concern, with intelligence— So the next time that they are talking with me or with another Christian about God or about Jesus or about the Bible, that they will be interested in having that conversation rather than being turned off because the bridge has been burned because I've been rude or I've I've continued to pound on them or pound on the issue even when they've already disengaged. I mean, it's really ironic that some people, when they recognize, you know, that metaphorically that submarine has, has gone down, they're no longer engaged, for some Christians, what they try to do then is just essentially send down depth charges. Let me just keep firing away at you, and maybe if I fire away hard enough, eventually you'll come back up. But that's a really strange way to try to get a submarine to come back up to the surface, isn't it? Generally, it's not going to work. That's why Peter says, do these things. When you answer them, do so with gentleness and respect. Keep people up on the surface as much as we're able to. There will certainly be times where people are offended by what Jesus says. And the words of Jesus are oftentimes offensive, especially to the, to the mentality of our culture. There will be many times where people do not like biblical teaching on various aspects of life. But if people are going to get offended, I want to make sure that they are offended by the message of Scripture, the message of Jesus, 
and not by me as the messenger. And that's why Peter and others tell us, do these things with gentleness and respect, with care and grace and love. And we live in a very polarized culture. I mean, our culture, in many ways, doesn't know how to disagree um, in, a, in a civil way. We tend to demonize each other. But I think if we as Christians can be characterized by gentleness and respect in our interactions with others, even when we disagree, I mean, some people will look at that and say, you know what, that's weakness. But in reality, that's strength. It takes strength and grace to live with humility and gentleness and respect. But if we can do that, how much more will we stand out? You know, at first people may not understand it. But as we rub shoulders with people over the weeks, months, years, what a difference it will make. I mean, you think of Penn Jillette, this video we saw earlier. How different would his reaction have been if this guy who came to talk with him was a jerk, was rude? Just say, you know what? I know that you're an atheist. I know that you are a sinner. You need to repent and turn to Jesus now. And he went on about that type of stuff. I would think that Pendulette's response would be quite different. But here, I mean, he, he could not stop gushing about how good of a man this was, how, how kind he was, how sincere he was. And I mean, I almost got kind of uncomfortable thinking, you know what? He probably only talks to that guy for a few minutes and he's making all these statements about how good he is. But I think, you know what? What if Christians are known that way? As people who genuinely care, who are genuinely kind, whether you meet them just for a couple of minutes or meet them for a lifetime. That these are people who really care, who respect me, even when we disagree. That they will sit here in dialogue with me. They will be patient with me. They care for me. Now I want to close with three questions for us. One question is, does my life inspire others to follow Jesus? Does my life inspire others to follow Jesus? Because the assumption here in 1 Peter 3 is that we are living our lives in such a distinctive and even attractive way that people want to know, you know, where does that hope come from? Where does that joy, that life come from? They will want to know. And that is what brings the question of what makes you different. So does my life inspire others to follow Jesus? This is why we, why we emphasize relational ministry here at this church. Because it's in the context of relationships as we rub shoulders with people that they will see the difference and want to know, you know, where does that difference come from when we can point them to Jesus? Second question is, am I growing in how to explain why I follow Jesus? This is more the, the explanation side of, you know what, why do I believe what, do, what I believe? How do I respond to objections? What difference has Jesus really made in my life? And we are prepared to explain that. We have to recognize our culture is, is constantly evolving. The hot-button issues, uh, the sticky topics, the types of objections and questions people have today are quite different than what they may have had 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or, you know, even 5 or 10 years ago. So we need to be constantly learning and growing how to engage our culture in dialogue that points into Christ. And the final question is, what attitude do I convey, especially in my relationships with non-Christians? Is my attitude winsome? Is it caring? Is it kind? Is it, is it compassionate? Is it respectful? Or is it rude? Arrogant? Indifferent? Holier than thou? Now, that should not be our attitude if we recognize that we too are, are sinful before a holy God and it's only by God's grace 
that we can have true life. We're on the same footing as everyone else. What we are doing is offering them the same grace that has been offered to us. Now, there certainly are times that we are called to confront culture. We will be talking about that in the future. I mean, there's times to take on that prophetic role of, of, of proclaiming, you know what, this is out of bounds. This is not right. But I also think of Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. Do the work of an evangelist. An evangelist seeks to build bridges across which the gospel can flow. Now, there are some people in our culture who have that gift of evangelism. They can see people coming in faith in Christ all the time. But you look at Timothy. I don't think he was a natural evangelist. I mean, he was probably quite timid, perhaps shy. But Paul tells him, do the work of an evangelist. Go out there, build these bridges of trust with non-believers around you across which the gospel can flow. Now, our vision here at Freedom's Church is inspiring our community to seek and to follow Jesus in spirit and in truth. And a huge part of inspiring the people around us to follow Jesus is through how we live. Through living lives that reflect the good news of Jesus Christ. And living lives that in our relationships with others are full of grace, respect, kindness, and trustworthiness. That will make a difference. I think of Pendulette. Well, what would happen to him if that man who brought him the Bible got to know him on a longer-term basis. If they were able just to build a friendship there, especially if Pendulet got to know a number of other Christians as well, Christians who respected him, who, who treated him with care, with kindness, compassion, who they were able to have a back-and-forth dialogue about, you know what, you're an atheist, I'm not. Why, why do we each hold these positions? Um, what would that be like? I don't know exactly. I don't know what the outcome would be, but I do know that there would be a much greater chance that someone like Penn Gillette is going to come to faith in Christ, surrounded by those types of people, than if Christians just kind of keep their distance or treat him rudely. And I think about our culture here, that, that uh, what would it be like if we here in this church and if other Christians here in these areas, in these communities of Port Washington and Sockville and Grafton and Cedarburg and uh, Cedar Grove and and Belgium and Fredonia and all these places of Christians are really living out their faith in a winsome manner that, that makes other people thirsty to want to know this Christ. And then we can build those bridges of trust and respect and kindness and gentleness and care. What could happen? I don't know. I'm excited to see. That's what I'm praying for and that's what my prayer is that we will see happen in and through us is to see Jesus cause an awakening and a revival as we live out this first peter three type of faith let's pray lord jesus we are thankful that we get the calling to be your ambassadors lord it is easy to to be indifferent or to be arrogant um, at times to be rude or, or just to be frustrated lord with what's going on in our culture or when we interact with people around us but lord i pray that you will give us a gentleness that you will give us respect for people around us that you will give us the passion, the motivation to intentionally build redemptive relationships with those around us. And that in the coming months and years, that you will work through the Christian communities in our, in our neighborhoods, whether it's Freedens, whether it's other churches in the area, that we will all be working together to represent you faithfully. And it's in, in the process that we'll see more and more people coming to know Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.